We are outdoor ladies who hunt, shoot, and fish, all while working in conservation and chasing kids. I am Julia Plugge with the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission. I'm Rachel Alice with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. I am Megan Weiskup with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. And I'm Tana Fancher with the Kansas Department of Wildlife, Parks, and Tourism. Follow us on our outdoor adventures. Welcome back to She Goes Outdoors. So the birds are chirping right now and the rain has absolutely swept the Midwest. I don't know about you guys, but there's water in my basement. Not the best time, but other than that, spring is absolutely wonderful time of year. We've got the crappie spawn going on. Um, I know a couple of us on the call today are starting to get itchy about turkey season. It's just right around the corner. And of course, wild edibles are going to be more available here as the weather warms up. So um, spring just brings so many amazing wonders like mushrooms, asparagus, wild ephemerals. So as you guessed it, today we get to talk a little bit about spring foraging. So I am so excited today. We get to have one of my favorite peoples in the state of Iowa on the call with us. Chelsea is joining us for uh, a talk today on spring foraging. And so she's the naturalist up in Mitchell County, which for those of you that aren't in Iowa, that is often referred to as God's country or amongst many other things, but it's right on the Minnesota-Iowa border. Chelsea works for the Mitchell County Conservation Board and just a slight plug here. So Iowa has 99 counties and we have 99 county conservation boards and we are absolutely so lucky to have these entities on the ground. Um, naturalists, we have park managers, park rangers, we have techs, um, just doing wonderful things for the the 3% of public land that we have in our state. So um, for those of you that aren't aware, county conservation boards usually have a mission around the idea of acquiring, developing, maintaining parks, rec areas, forest, wildlife, and other conservation areas. So really, the whole board's job is to maintain space for people to, to enjoy and, and preserve, really. So off my soapbox, back to Chelsea. Uh, she is the mother of the amazing Wren, who I've had the, uh, the luxury of watching. She's a, a month older than my little one, so it's been fun to watch the two of them. Um, her and her husband own an acreage of in northern Iowa. Uh, they enjoy hunting, fishing, trapping, and really just getting out in the outdoors. I've been lucky enough to hear some of Chelsea's amazing stories, and it's very clear that turkey hunting is her favorite pursuit. That doesn't begin to scratch the surface, so I'm excited to have the, uh, the opportunity to welcome Chelsea to the show, and uh, we're so glad to have you here. Awesome, thanks, and I'm excited to be here. Wow, well, Chelsea, your bio is just absolutely fascinating. Um, so many cool things. We're so excited to welcome you to the podcast and have you on with us. It sounds like you're going to fit in so well with the She Goes Outdoors crew, so it's great to have you on. I know Megan and Rachel have had the fortunate opportunity to get to know you through the Iowa Becoming an Outdoors program. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself for those of us that don't know you quite as well? Um, tell us about your story, how you were introduced to the outdoors, and maybe how you decided to get into this career. What does a typical day look like for Chelsea? Those are uh, fun questions and somewhat difficult to answer. I am the, I've been in Mitchell County for nine years, um, but I've been in the naturalist field pretty much since I was 
you know, maybe one or two years old. My parents liked to tease me uh, when I was little. I, my mom was going back to school to get her teaching certificate. And so my dad would have me at supper time, their little 13 inch black and white TV. Uh, supper time was also when Wild America came on. And he said that I would not eat unless it was the commercials because I was too enthralled with whatever Marty Stauffer had going on with Wild America. So it's it was pretty much predestined that this is where I was going to be. Um, but I didn't know that the whole time. I knew when I was in middle school that I wanted to be involved in natural resources in some way, but um, I'm an only child. I grew up on the farm. So I was always, my, the outdoors was, is my siblings uh, were my playmates. And that was just where I was all the time. I was never in the house. We had animals. We, you know, I was out in the field with my dad and it just kind of came naturally to be, to be involved in nature. And so I pursued through college, this career, um, and I thought I wanted to be a researcher. I thought I wanted to be out in the woods by myself. Just, you know, leave me alone. I don't want to be around kids. My mom's a teacher. No, not for me. But after a summer of doing that up in the Upper Peninsula, I realized um, I want to know about everything. I want to learn about everything. I want to share everything amazing that nature has to offer with other people. And research wasn't a way for me to do that. I can take their information from research and share it with people that might not know why they should care about water quality, may not know why they should care about an endangered species that may be in the area, might not know how to, might want to, but not might not know how to take care of their soil if they're, you know, on a farm or something like that. And so I went to Iowa State and I graduated and I have been in as a naturalist ever since. And it really is, I'm really lucky that I get to have my profession also be my passion because I tell people nature Chelsea doesn't shut off. Like this is just who I am all the time. And so it's really fun to, you know, sometimes for my family members get the eye roll of, okay, what's Chelsea bringing to the potluck or to the, you know, Thanksgiving dinner. My, my family friends think I'm always trying to poison them. So he always has to tease me, but it's, it's just so fun to see that excitement and share that excitement with people. I get the same looks of wonderment. Like when I do my Monarch programs on a three-year-old's face uh, as I do a 93-year-old's face. And so the wonder and excitement of nature is just, it, I can't explain that how fun it is to get to do this job. That, is, that sounds absolutely amazing. I'm, <laughs> I love the fact that you've just, you've, you grew up as a child adoring the great outdoors and continue now to spread that love and that connection where you could you could have been a biologist, but you took a little bit of a different route to share that with you want to be able to educate others and absolutely love that. And, you know, as a naturalist, I'm sure you recognize and see that the uh, ground is starting to turn green again at least in Nebraska like in this last week it's amazing just to watch how fast everything has greened up is growing Um, we've been getting a lot of rains Uh, now the weather is a little bit warmer and so I can imagine like you're probably just itching to get outdoors and to start foraging. Is there anything our listeners could be excited to go out and start finding now? Yeah, so um, I'm still, you know, up here in the the northern tundra, so we don't really have much green going on, but um, we are just finishing up maple stirrup season, 
And so the really, after a long winter, we've gone through our hunting seasons and things like that. Unless you're harvesting um, shag bark for making like shag bark hickory or using it like in a smoker, um, just to flavor uh, whatever meats you may be smoking. Uh, maple syrup really is the first, I guess, foraged food to, that is available um, in the late winter, early spring. Um, after that, I am very much looking forward to watching the you know earth wake up and come alive again and get her coat of green and be finding a few things. So just off the top of the list, as far as what to look for, or if you're I'm kind of curious about this. Is there anything that if I start now that I can look for? One of my all-time favorite wild edibles is stinging nettle. And that will sometimes even start to grow up through the snow. They have, will be looking a little bit more purpley than green. Um, and that helps them, those anthocyanins, it's kind of the same stuff that helps um, maple trees turn colors in the fall, but it's a, it's a sugar. And so it'll help those really early spring greens grow even if there's uh, still some snow on the ground and still pretty cold, but those uh, stinging nettles, those first fresh greens, you can't beat it. It's, you know, like growing something in your garden and you, you taste that first bite of a homegrown tomato or something like that. But those fresh greens in the spring are just are so refreshing after a dull winter um, of dried and preserved things. So um, stinging nettles, an all-time favorite also are ramps or wild leek. Those will be coming up um, a little bit later spring, but starting, you can start to see them now. Um, garlic mustard, uh, nasty invasive. So, you know, if you can't beat them, eat them kind of a thing. So take the whole thing if you're going to be harvesting uh, garlic mustard. Uh, dandelions, the whole thing is edible. They were actually brought here on purpose as a food plant. And so, um, again, can't beat them, eat them. Instead of spraying chemicals on our lawns or, you know, cursing the dandelions, they're extremely beneficial for not only us, but our um, early pollinators in the spring as well. Ostrich fern, so your fiddleheads. Fiddlehead is a growth stage that all ferns go through, but ostrich fern is the common edible species. And there are species that are not edible of the fern. So you do have to pay attention to that. But ostrich fern, fiddleheads coming up this early spring and violets, violets, the, the flowers and the leaves. So those are just a really short list of some of the first things that find in the springtime. And it's interesting that you bring up nettles because, you know, my family, we live on a farm and we don't spray you know, around the farm. We're, our 80 acres is far from a pedicured farm. It's <laughs> it's true weeds. And so we do have a lot of nettles everywhere. And that is, that's always one of the first things that we see pop up. And I one time had heard that, and, and I'm curious if you have heard this too, that not only is it edibles, but people with arthritis can rub their hands on nettles and that that nettle leaf, the stinging of it, will eventually work their way so that it cures arthritis. So I always tell my dad, I've told, I've heard this, and I tell him, just keep rubbing your hands on those nettles. Keep rubbing your hands on those nettles. It's just amazing how what some people we see as a weed really, truly is, can be beneficial. And yeah, Rachel, they are they are the worst. You got to build that immunity to them. 
Yeah, I, I have to talk about this. First, Chelsea, you probably win the award for the most poetic of all of the guests we've had on so far. Listening to you talk about your passion and your job and your background is just beautiful. Um, so number one, we'll just start with that. <laughs> None of us on the show talk quite as poetically as you. Um, but number two, you, you got to go into more detail about nettles. When I used to work for the fish crew at K-State, I didn't know that nettles were a thing. I didn't know what they look like. And inevitably I went tromping through them every single day and would get so mad, but was like too proud to admit that I didn't know what was wrong and what I was doing. Can you talk to us about like how you prepare or eat nettles? Because just thinking of that feeling on my skin, like inside out on the inside of me and my stomach makes me want to die. So talk about that a little more. Nettles. Well, I have that kind of relationship, with, with, but with burdock. Um, so I've had to come to terms with growing up on the farm, I had to take it out of my, the horse's hair, my hair, the dog's hair. So I I understand the like plant hatred, um, and having to come to terms with that. Now we're okay, me and burdock, but nettles. Uh, yes. So the stinging is actually, and wood nettles are worse than, than the, just your common stinging nettles. The, I mean, I don't know if I've, we haven't done any scientific studies to actually prove that, but just comparing walking through the woods and wood nettles to just your average stinging nettle, way worse. Uh, painful versus more of the annoying itchy. So stinging nettles have, they're called trichomes. And they are like a little hypodermic needle filled with um, a different mixture of things, different acids. And so they're not a, an allergic reaction like say poison ivy would be. Um, so pretty much everybody that comes in contact with nettles will have some kind of effect from them, but you do over time kind of learn how to tolerate them or learn how to work with them or touch them, or just remember to bring your gloves and wear long pants, um, when you're harvesting them. So, and if you forget, you'll get that nice itchy reminder, those trichomes, those little fine hairy needles, um, are deactivated when you cook them. Some people I know, and my husband has tried this too. If you harvest them and let them wilt, can eat them fresh because they they don't have enough oomph to cut to, to sting you, to poke you. Um, that's not really my preferred way to eat them. Um, so I always cook them. You can saute them or you can um, do a quick boil, and that completely deactivates the stingers. And what you're left with is a delicious green. So there's a lot of things you can eat. There's a lot of things you can make tea out of. Um, but I like to focus on the wild foods that actually have, you know, some substance that are worth your time to harvest them that aren't just, oh, a tea. What, how can I eat this? How can I use this? If I'm going to take the time to harvest, I want to make it worth it. And so stinging that. Exactly. I like that. So, um, I I don't want to just make a tea. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you can, that's fine. And I love tea and the nettle tea is beneficial. Uh, but it, it tastes like spinach. And so if you like green, so it's um, cooked green, spinach, kale, those types of things, nettles are a great replacement for that. Um, and they actually have some structure. So like if you cook um, domestic spinach, it kind of, it's kind of just slimy. I mean, I like it, but it, it just doesn't have a lot of texture. It doesn't really hold up. But stinging nettles or wood nettles are also edible, but they both have a, a nice green flavor um, spinach flavor, and they have some texture. So even if you're, if you're just eating them on their own, a little butter or vinegar or something, or sauteed with bacon, whatever you're doing, or if you're combining it into a dish, they hold up and they have 
incredible health benefits. So like the iron and vitamin A and calcium, all of those nutrition factors are off the charts for all wild edibles um, compared to our domestic food. So um, yes, uh, wear long pants. And um, if you're gonna harvest them as far as um, like for eating and you don't have your gloves, the tops of the leaves do not have those trichomes. And so you can kind of grab from the top and fold over so you're not touching the stem or underside of the leaf. And so that's a way to get around those. It's like that scene in Finding Nemo where they're bouncing on the tops of the jellyfish. And the tops don't sting you. Exactly. That's awesome to know, Chels. I'm so glad we were able to weave in Finding Nemo this morning. Um, <laughs> so I have to say, we've talked about maple syrup. And so I obviously have to go to pancakes and it just, it reminds me of spring. If, if anyone's ever up in New England and you get to a New Hampshire sugar house, do it. It's uh, so worth it. I've also been lucky enough to, to try some of Chelsea's maple syrup and it's amazing. But you mentioned dandelions and I want to circle back to that. So I've seen dandelion wine. What else can you actually do? do with the dandelion besides wait for it to seed out and then you know blow the seeds everywhere and hope you just send it to your neighbor's yard instead of yours how do you prepare it so kind of like with tea you can pretty much turn anything into wine or alcohol so that's a a great little uh side uh benefit to wild edibles and my husband happens to be a hobby brewer so we get all sorts of delicious concoctions at our house um i have a friend uh, who i'll talk about little bit later when I talk about references and other other places to find information. Um, she has a whole book on wild crafted cocktails. And so that's, that's a fun little jumping point from your dandelion question. But um, this last spring I did, um, I went on our Facebook page and I did a live on dandelions because they are um, so hated by most people. Um, but I get a group of kindergartners out here and we have a field of dandelions behind the nature center. And they just go nuts. They're like, look at all the flowers. And so it was a time to, and it's a plant that we can maybe take a second look at or look at with different eyes and see the benefits. Um, so the whole plant is actually completely edible. Like I mentioned before, it was brought here intentionally as a food plant. Many um, like Mediterranean cultures, especially Italy, have um, like domestic crop varieties of dandelion. You can find them in some seed catalogs. I know Baker Creek has different varieties of dandelion for food, but everybody has a yard full of free food and dandelions are probably number one on that list. So the leaves are edible. Um, the flowers are edible. The, um, the crown or like before the flowers come up, there's those little, little flower buds kind of just hanging out in a little circle down at the base of the leaves near the ground. Um, that whole part is edible. The root is edible. And obviously you can make teas from these things. The root can be roasted into a coffee substitute. I'm not a coffee drinker. It's it's bitter. And so it has that kind of roasty bitterness. But it when, I wouldn't say it's like coffee, but it kind of gives you that same feeling. Um, there's no caffeine in it either. It's also really good for your liver. So you can get like dandelion root tea in the you know organic section at the grocery store. Um, it's kind of like a cleansing tea. So it's more of a blood cleanser, not a digestive cleanser. Um, the leaves, again, are off the charts with nutritional values, but a good addition to salads or cooked up greens. Or um, if you add greens, I have a friend who put them in brats. Um, so if you're adding greens like to a dish um, that's cooked, 
Um, you don't have to cook them. You can eat them fresh. Just another couple of ways. You put them in broths, put them in different patties and mixing it with burgers and that kind of thing. Um, or just like a, a cooked salad on the side. The flowers are completely edible. So I have made like a simple syrup with them and it ends up kind of tasting like honey. It kind of looks like honey too. And so what you do is you sort of make a tea and then you add one-to-one sugar and you can use that um, to make like a, a beverage. You can use it um, as a syrup on top of ice cream. You can use it to flavor different desserts. And I also have a friend um, who is another, he was the first naturalist in Iowa, actually. He, he has a book um, called The Scout's Guide to Wild Edibles. He has one of my favorite recipes for using just the flowers and, and not not the whole part of the flower, just like the blossoms. It's a, a vegetarian burger. I mean, I love vegetarian food, but I'm also a hunter. And so we eat a lot of meat too. But these burgers are so good and we cooked some what we were backpacking with friends um, one spring, and we had the ingredients for that and cooked over the campfire. They were to die for, just as good as cooking a, a you know deer burger over the fire. So lots of different ways to use dandelions. Well, Chelsea, we could probably sit and talk to you about food all day. It's going to be hard to get through this episode in the normal time we allow because uh, you've certainly got the audience for it here. <laughs> We love to talk about this. You know, when we talk about foraging, especially in Kansas, and I'm sure Nebraska and Iowa as well, things get really serious surrounding mushrooms. And I mean, serious, like there are feuds on Facebook there. It's like people don't share their spots. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of the wild mushrooms that are edible um, in our area? And I know morels is a big one. So we'll tease that a little bit. But like, what's the charm of those? What is so exciting? Why do people get so fired up about this? Um, morel hunting is the same in every Midwest state. So my grandpa was notorious for not telling his secret mushroom spots or his fishing spots. We'd be like, grandpa, where'd you find that mushroom? Oh, in the woods. Where? By a tree. Thanks. Um, I actually felt like such a bad naturalist for a long time because I, I took mushroom, I I took a mushroom class in college. And so I was out of college in my first full-time job before I actually found a morel mushroom. Um, I thought I knew what I was looking for. I thought I knew, you know, there should be a mushroom growing here. Why is there not? What am I missing? Um, and it took a, a coworker actually showing me, I was like, I don't want to take your spot. I want to be able to find my own. So help me learn how to find my own. Um, So I think the magic appeal to morels is the thrill of the hunt. There's no guarantee that you're going to find one. You can study them for years and have a, a plan and know exactly, oh, they like to grow by this tree and this is the soil temperature and this is what we're looking for. And they're not going to be there. Um, and then you turn around and, uh, one year, my, my husband's, uh, my father-in-law was mowing them over underneath the pine trees. Morels aren't supposed to grow there. What is going on? And he didn't know what they were. And he just mowed them over and I cried. (laughs) So, um, they are just, they are just such a mystery. And that is what is the appeal about them. And yes, you can eat them. Um, of course, uh, I was telling Rachel yesterday that, um, you know, morel mushrooms are great. They are a tasty edible. Um, you could, you know, put their crackers, fry them in butter, and they're going to taste good. Anything's going to taste good if you do that, if you do that cooking preparation. Um, but it is truly the thrill of the hunt. Um, my, again, my friend Mike has done some studies, and um, I can give you some tips on 
maybe the place to start looking so you don't have to struggle like I did. Um, and that is you're looking for recently dead or dying elm. So there are elm trees that will be too dead, too far gone. So you're looking for um, that classic vase shape. It would be beneficial to kind of study some bark um, characteristics to know, okay, this is an elm tree bark versus maple versus oak, whatever it may be, the recently dead or dying. And so a branch that is dead or the bark is peeled off, but the rest of the tree is still alive would be a good place to start looking. Or if the bark is starting to peel, especially toward the top, but underneath is still kind of like a salmon pink color. That is your more recently dead elms. And so that would be another good place, a good tree to start looking around. Another key factor is the soil temperature. So here, and it, I think it's pretty much the same across all of the Midwest, when your soil temperature reaches 53 degrees, that is when the morels are going to start popping. So you can hear the old adages of, you know, when the uh, oak leaves are the size of a squirrel's ear, or um, when you see another, you know, different types of plants growing, that's when they're going to pop. But truly, it's that that temperature, soil temperature is your, your key thing. So Chelsea, I know we have so many questions about this, because there are lots of fun ways to prepare morels. But, you know, I think we need to take a moment to talk about safety. Because what little I do know about morels, I know that there are some lookalike species to avoid and maybe look out for. And then also just general safety in the woods. If you don't know what something is, maybe don't eat it. Um, our resident mushroom expert here in Kansas has a fun sign on her desk that says, all mushrooms are edible once. <laughs> Absolutely. So can you maybe talk to us about some safety tips when we're in the woods or key characteristics to look for to tell these apart from some of those lookalike species? Yeah, so uh, I'll start off with just general outdoor, especially during foraging safety. Just like anything, tell someone where you're going and when you plan to be back. Um, or take a friend with you. You never know if you need those extra hands to help you gather something. Plus, it's really fun to share, especially people that aren't necessarily as outdoorsy. Um, this like, oh, you can eat that kind of a thing. Pick water bottle, sunscreen, any kind of protective clothing, especially it is going to be spring turkey hunting season. So no red, white, and blue on your head, wear blaze orange or like a, like bright pink or, you know, neon green or something really that stands out. So people can see you, especially if you're, you know, going to be bending over, crawling around in the ground. Also know the laws on the property that you are foraging on. So whether it's public or private property, um, there are rules on things that you can and cannot forage or what you can take and cannot take from public land and private land, obviously make sure you have permission to be on that land. And pay attention to where the plants or mushrooms are coming from off of that land. So if it's near a drainage or along a roadway, there could potentially be some um, contaminants in those plants, whether it's um, heavy metals that the plants actually uptake or some, you know, field runoff chemicals, um, sprays, those types of things on the mushrooms, whatever it is you're harvesting. And yes, everything, even you know, mushrooms included, is edible once. But it's if you can eat it again is the true test of your identification skills. So I tell people that come to my classes, you know, I want, can I eat that to be the very last question you ask about this plant or mushroom? You need to know that plant or mushroom like you do someone in your own household. So if you have other people in your home or even several pets, you know who's walking down the hallway the, by the click of their claws or by the steps that they take or who coughed or sneezed without seeing them. And that's how you need to know these plants and mushrooms. You need to know what they look like at different times of the year. They need to know, you need to know what other plants like to grow around them, what habitats they like, 
um, what they look like when they're in flower versus when they are fruiting, all of those different things to keep in mind. And once you know that, um, and check several guides because you, you know, just don't take one person's word for it. So get a couple good guides and I have some recommendations for that later. So there's a couple good Facebook groups that I am on um, that I help manage that also have other good people to help you identify things. Um, but always be 100% sure without a doubt that you have what you think you have and that it is edible. And for morels, there are a few lookalikes. There is some question on a few of them, whether they also have some edibility or not, but to find your true morel, a good test, and also to help keep them clean. Um, so there's, you know, oftentimes little centipedes or bugs and roly polies inside of morels, place them open from top to bottom. So the long way, longitudinally. And um, a true morel will be hollow inside. Um, some of your false morels uh, or lookalikes potentially will have like some cottony fibers on the inside. And so just not only to clean out your mushrooms, but just to check, yes, this is what I have. Um, and there are, are several species of morels as well. Um, so looking at those characteristics, because um, some of the even edible ones have some limitations and some people can develop some sensitivities to eating morels. I have a, a friend who ate morels for years and one day made him sick. He cannot eat morels anymore. Um, it just, his body said no more. This was it. So he had to, he was asking me about what other things, what other mushrooms in the spring that he could find and um, kind of circling back. Spring is really not the prime mushroom time. And we think it is because people have this, you know, mad sense around, um, around finding morels. And there's some really fun, like training guides for looking for morels, like have your neighbor hide sponges in your yard and <laughs> go find them or practice bending over and tying your shoe and say, I got one. Um, all sorts of really funny things with morel hunting. It, morels and pheasant baps are, are the two pretty common edible mushrooms in the spring. F late summer and fall truly is when it's like mushroom season. I mean, there's so many more varieties coming up and edible and not, but mushrooms are fascinating no matter what, whether you can eat them or not. So, um, but spring, there's a few morels being the, probably the prime prize. Chelsea, you're an absolutely wealth of knowledge that you know about foraging. And this is, my brain is just like packed full right now. And the, I can't even imagine like, like every time you see a plant, just the information you know about those plants. And I'm absolutely loving it. You're bringing up a lot of inform, is information, perhaps websites, Facebooks, guides, uh, websites. Where, I mean, if, if you were going to pick a couple resources, just to tell our listeners right now, what would be the best resources for them to reach out? And then I also want our listeners to know that I'm hoping that we could get Chelsea to share, you know, once we post this um, episode, the link to it on our Facebook page, the She Goes Outdoors website, that Chelsea will help us uh, link some of the resources that will uh, guide our listeners to, um, you know, the information that they can learn more about because 
obviously, I mean, you have learned this from resources and we're hoping that we can share those resources with our, with our listeners as well. So, you know, on top of that, what are some, just some guides or is there a particular website or other podcasts that you can direct our listeners to, to learn more from? Absolutely. So I'm a book person. I have a I have a slight book addiction. And so books are always my go-to. I'm very fortunate to um, know and be friends with and get to teach alongside some amazing authors. I mean, so much more knowledge and experience than I have. And so I I get to learn from them all the time. Um, But my number one, especially for Midwest area would be, there's a three book series by Samuel Thayer, Nature's Harvest, Incredible Edibles, and, um, or Nature's Garden. Those those three books are awesome. And one of the great things about them is they are not cookbooks. They are, are teaching you how to know a plant, not how to cook it. And so again, it's that, that very last question of how do I eat this? Um, but he takes you through how to identify and how to know the plant. And he also has a really fun guide in the front of like prime um, harvest times. And he's located in Wisconsin. And so you can kind of adjust the, the calendar a little bit to know, oh, I'm going to be traveling here or, you know, it's, it's going to be May soon. What, uh, what things can I start to look for? And so those are really handy guides. Um, I also love uh, Teresa Maroney's collection and they are specific to regions. So she has a um, mushrooms of the Midwest, of the upper Midwest. And she also has a wild berries and fruit guide that is um, specific to different states. Um, So I have the Illinois, Iowa, Missouri, and I also have the Michigan, Minnesota, and Wisconsin because, you know, I'm a mile away. I have to have the other book. Anything by um, Leda Meredith or Ellen Zakos are great. Um, John Callis has a great guide for greens, and he has a lot of the information. Nutritionally, he's been doing some studies. Hank Shaw's books. I mean, I could go on and on. Just amazing, amazing things. My friend Mike Crable has his guide, the Scouts Guide I mentioned before, um, and that is for Iowa specifically, but very common plants across the Midwest. There's a couple of Facebook forum group pages. The Midwest Wild Edible and Forager Society is great. Um, each state usually has local mycology or mushroom clubs. And so those are great um, resources for mushrooms, especially if you go out on a foray or a finding session with these people. It's just fun to, to see all of the different fungal uh, variety and diversity in your area, whether, and they are not focusing on edibility. It's just, they're focusing on identification. And so those, those people are really great um, resources in local areas, county conservations um, or other um, conservation offices and staff people can be of help, or I'm always available too. I love them. You know, Miss Chelsea, what is this? questions. It keeps me current. It keeps my identification skills. Free to reach out and find your local expert. Yeah. Send them a picture, send them a text, um, shoot them a Facebook message. We love those questions. So we love the curiosity. I do want to do just a quick shout out that about a year ago did a She Goes Outdoors podcast interviewing uh, Julie Geyser from here in Nebraska, and she discussed the uh, the appearance and some comparisons of our mushrooms uh, that would be you'd find here in Nebraska, so basically the same exact ones that Chelsea has mentioned today. So those of you following the podcast, scroll way back to the beginning of 2020 and listen to that one as well as you can catch up on all the other episodes if you're just starting to follow. So I wanted to do that little commercial 
little shout out. And I don't want to overwhelm people with the wild edibles. So this has been an interest of mine for years. It was sparked by when I was a child um, harvesting black raspberries um, in our, in our ditch and, um, eating the flowers out of our yard. My mom had showed me a couple, you know, my dad had shown me that I could eat clover and Timothy hay. And my mom had shown me that you could eat dandelions and just little things like that. And so if this is a curiosity at all for you, take one or two plants at a time, get to know them throughout the year, know them well. And then next year you can add five more. And so after a few years, you'll have a pretty good base of the common plants in your area and know everything there is to know about those plants, and then you can move on. And it does, um, for me, Julie, you had mentioned before, um, I can't go out, I can't go out in my parking lot and here at the office and not see something. And it really is, it's so wonderful to have so many plant friends out there. Like, you know their name, you know what they look like, and you can say hello to them, whether I can eat you or not. (laughs) So um, it's just, adds a whole other element to any outdoor activity to be able to, to recognize the diversity of life around us. Okay. I think you need your, your own show. You're so inspiring to listen to. I love the love you have. And we've already talked about it once, but man, I would tune into your show any day. I've had a lot of Um, friends say that, yes, you need to start your own YouTube or whatever. And I'm like, I'd have to have my house clean if I'm going to be doing that kind of stuff, you know, showing how to cook or do whatever. So these are, these are much more fun for me, but maybe someday. Your house yeah. doesn't have to be clean for a podcast. Do a podcast. <laughs> Might exactly. have to do that one. <laughs> I need like daily nature meditations with Chelsea. I can listen to in the morning. Well, you know, Chelsea, earlier you mentioned potlucks and some of the recipes you brought to potlucks, people were like, oh, really? You know, I can't believe you brought that or that you could eat that. I'm curious maybe of what the most non-traditional thing is that you've harvested and cooked. And if anything that you've brought to a potluck has been full on rejected. I saw that question before and I tried to prepare a little bit. Um, So I, another great resource would be the Midwest Wild um, Harvest Festival. And that takes place in Wisconsin. It's a Midwest festival and gathering. And usually it's in uh, late September. And so that is where a lot of these people teach. And that's where I um, have taught and I run some of the kids activities too. And it's just a really great community of people that are interested in foraging and interested in learning. And it's just an amazing weekend of delicious food and, and learning. And you just come back so refreshed and excited about being outside. On the night before they have a cooking contest and I'm not bitter or anything, but I've come in second place, probably I think five or six years out of the like nine years that I've been going. And so one of the, there's two things I was going to highlight there to answer your question. One of the most non-traditional or maybe intriguing or sort of um, funny dishes that I made was a chicken pot pie, but it was chicken of the woods mushroom. It was pretty much all wild edibles. um, And it was, um, ended up being, um, I think almost completely vegan. Um, There was some butter, but I had chicken of the woods mushroom for the chicken. I had the cream sauce made out of dehydrated puffball mushrooms. And then I sort of made the sauce with a broth from um, dehydrated peasant back mushrooms seasoned with ramps that I had preserved and nodding onion um, that I had harvested and curry sage and wild bergamot. And um, I think Virginia mountain mint was in there as well, just kind of adding an herbal component. Some of the vegetables that were in there were um, common mallow, common mallow um, 
they call them cheese wheels. They are the green seed pods. They kind of look like a little cheese wheel um, and they have a flavor very similar to peas. And so those were my quote unquote peas of the dish. The root vegetables, carrots and potatoes were wild parsnip roots, uh, were actually Queen Anne's lace roots, which are the exact same species as carrot, Dacus carota. And so the carrots that you grow in your garden, the carrots you buy at the grocery store, you see them growing wild, but we call them Queen Anne's lace and we call them a flower. Uh, but they are the same species. They are just the wild ancestor. So used um, daylily tubers as my potatoes. I also incorporated some nettle greens and the crust was made out of hazelnuts, acorn, and a little bit of regular wheat flour and a duck egg, but it was a domestic duck egg from my, my ducks at home. That was probably, um, oh, I threw in, oh, that's stuff for my weird thing. Um, so that was, and there's probably some other things, ingredients in that, but that was probably one of my most complicated, like, sort of pun, uh, funny dishes. Um, but the most non-traditional or maybe weird foods. Um, so black nightshade berries. Um, I harvest, people are always like, oh, that's poisonous. What are you doing? There's a lot of great research done by Samuel Fair in one of his books about the bad rap that black nightshade has gotten because of a misidentification. Um, and it just persists to this day. So ripe, Black nightshades, the solanum nigrum berries are edible. Um, some just like with any food, domestic or, or wild, everybody has their own preferences and tastes, everybody has their own tolerances or, or allergies um, or reactions to different food. And so you do have to be aware of that. They taste and are a relative to um, ground cherries. And so they have a slight tomato flavor, but are also kind of sweet. And so um, you, incorporating the black nightshade berries in anything gets people kind of thrown for a loop a little bit like, oh, this is poison, but wait, I can eat it? What's, what's going on here? Um, another thing that I have yet to try, my friend Alan Burgo, who's a chef um, up in this, the Twin Cities, he just wrote a book and I think it's getting released now. Um, so that will be another one added to my list. He has told me that groundhog is one of the best meats. So I have to find myself groundhog to try it, but said it's delicious. So that'll be, that'll be another foraged, uh, hunted, wild food to try that I'm excited for. Listeners, you should have just like, if you were, <laughs> if you could see us all right now, the, I think Rachel, Tana, and I, our eyes, like, totally, we just all like scooted up to the screen and our eyes had this like, what did she just say groundhog? So I, I got it. I think I'm going to be getting this book to learn more. <laughs> yeah, he has a really, he's got a, um, some episodes on his YouTube channel. Um, and he, he um, even made deer trotters. And so he extracted the meat from like around the, behind the hoof of a deer. And so that's another on my husband and I's list of things and ways that we can use when our deer, when we harvest deer. So he's, he's incredible. Well, Chelsea, I think the biggest mistake we made today was not asking you to bring us any samples of your dishes that, uh, the chicken pot pie sounds incredible. You kind of lost me at trotters and groundhogs, but Hey, I'll keep an open mind. <laughs> I have yet to try them too. So we'll see. Chelsea, is there any, anything or an edible that you have tried that you, like your body won't allow you to try it again or is there something that you're like oh 
not going to do it again. Just can't do it again. I have to know that because it sounds like everything is amazing to you, but there's got to be at least one thing that you won't go back to. So I am not, I'm not a picky eater. Um, there are things that I don't care for. So I joke in my classes, like if, if we had the climate and there was a wild banana tree outside of my yard, I probably, I mean, I might take the time to harvest it, but I don't like fresh bananas. So I, you know, I might preserve them. I like dehydrated bananas. Um, the dogs like banana treats, but, and my husband likes bananas, but I don't. So I probably would go for something else um, just because of my taste preferences. Um, but the one thing, there hasn't been anything um, wild forage that I don't care for or hunted um, or caught fishing um, that I don't like, except for I, I try to use every part of any animal I harvest. I cannot do liver. I've tried. Um, I'm going to try to make maybe brown schwager because I like that, but it, liver of anything I can't do. Uh, also, so there is a flavor that comes from birch trees. So you can also harvest birch sap in the springtime, but I don't because it tastes like wintergreen and I absolutely despise the flavor of wintergreen. And so that is something that I will not touch. Again, my husband might, he likes it. I think he might do it just to tease me in, in spite of me. Yeah. Birch sap, birch flavored anything is not not my favorite, not my thing. Chelsea, what about your favorite thing? Like if you woke up tomorrow and your yard was full of this one thing, um, oh. what would you be stoked to find? Uh, fortunately, my yard is full of nettles. <laughs> so um, uh, I love nettles. Uh, they're just so diverse. And that's another great thing with wild edibles. Um, great excuse not to weed your garden. So if you have a garden, most of the things that come up as weeds in your garden or in your yard are edible. Um, not all, obviously check your identification, but good excuse that we don't have to weed the garden because uh, it's just more food growing. But um, I really do love nettles. And I did have one year a hen of the woods growing in my yard. I'd looked all year for, you know, I'll fall for one all over. And here it was in my yard. So m different mushrooms, edible mushrooms, or just interesting mushrooms to look at. I think because it's so nutritionally dense, your body and like, Every food that we eat that's real food had to come from somewhere, has a wild ancestor somewhere. And when we start exploring the world of wild edibles, yes, it tastes good. You can make you know, wild raspberry jam and maple syrup and all those sweet, delicious things. But we start getting into the mushrooms and the greens and the roots. And it's like our body recognizes it. Our DNA is like, I know what this is. This is good for me. And it's like, you just get so much energy and everything tastes amazing. And it's like, I, I have to learn more. I, and I tell people in my classes too, I do bring samples. So if you ever get a chance to come to my classes, I always bring samples because why would you do this if you don't know what it tastes like? So you got to get excited and inspired by something. So I have samples, but I tell people and I warn them. All right. I have some wild grape jelly, very simple, very easy, very good beginner. But if you taste it, you can never buy it from the store again. It's you ruined. Um, so I've been ruined on a few things now. It's like, um, I will always make like hot pepper jelly, you know, not a wild thing, but instead of using apple cider in it or apple juice, I use uh, crab apple. I can't go back. 
Well, Chelsea, you mentioned your classes. How can our listeners get into one of your classes? Where should they go to sign up? Well, and this is how Rachel and I got to know each other. I was fortunate enough to be asked to be a presenter at the Becoming an Outdoors Woman for Iowa. Um, and I have been asked back now, I don't know, four or five years now. Um, and it's an amazing program. I, I've it's something I look forward to all year long. So I do teach classes there and I am starting up a series of classes here in Mitchell County um, that will focus on a some kind of wild edible or wild foraged or harvested item and also like a sustainable practice. So whether it's a canning or meat preservation along with uh, wild edibles. So um, I post that I will be posting them on um, our Facebook page and I just, I travel around states, sometimes different counties, different areas to do programs, uh, special programs. Find me on Facebook. You can find Mitchell County Conservation Board on Facebook. That's typically the best place to see. And just a side plug, we're working on getting a couple different webinars up so that our folks in Kansas, Nebraska, and you know, all over Iowa can join us virtually. So we can, so we can all share in a little bit of just a little bit of Chelsea's knowledge. So just wanted to put that plug in there too. And, and we'll be getting those up and we'll post it to the ESCO Outdoors uh, website. So as we wrap up, Chelsea, I just wanted to, to again, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Tana's kind of mentioned it a couple of times, but your passion and just your excitement of our natural world and we all can do with it and enjoy it is just, it's, I don't know, it, it's hard to explain. It's, I don't have the poetry of words like you do. It's, uh, it, it's just exciting and, and it gets me excited to go learn and, and to open one of the books that you mentioned or join, you know, one of the Facebook groups or get started, like you said, identifying maybe one or two and really getting to know um, those plants before I can ask my favorite question. Miss Chelsea, can I eat this? I wanted to, to throw it back to you. Do you have any last comments that you'd like to share with our listeners before we wrap up? Yes. So number one, I love being part of this, you know, woman group of outdoor people. It's, it's so inspiring. I did not grow up hunting. I did not grow up. I grew up outside. I did not grow up as into maybe natural resources and some of these outdoor skills as um, I am now. And so it's been so inspiring to see these other amazing strong women that have gotten involved in the outdoors and um, trying things for the first time. So I went hunting the first time when I was 23 years old. And so I, I have gotten to share some of those experiences and first timers and people that, um, you know, maybe were even like my husband was a, a raw vegan for a while in college and now we hunt together and stuff. And so seeing people's connection with our natural resources is just so inspiring and, and so exciting. Um, but that also leaves me with my final thought of with foraging, with anything we do in the outdoors, there is um, the responsibility of sustainability, the ethics of foraging, the ethics of doing anything in our natural resources, making sure that we are respecting the land, allowing natural reproduction and foraging by the wild animals that sus are sustained by these plants and mushrooms. Only if there's excess, only if there is um, permission, only if there is an abundance of a plant. Like take a plant or a mushroom home to I learn to identify it, but don't harvest more than you're going to use. Make sure that we are leaving plenty behind for others and for the natural environment. So 
keep your ethics in mind and practice those as with anything in the outdoors. Well, we've gotten so much great information today. And, you know, like the girls have said, thank you, Chelsea. We certainly appreciate it. And I just want to recap because you did leave us with so much, you know, remember Chelsea's rule that can I eat this should be the last question you ask while out in the field. Um, Try to identify it, figure out where it came from and what other potential toxins it might've been exposed to. Uh, Keep your safety in mind. So Think about where you're going. Make sure it's safe and legal for you to be there. Be sure to check those regulations. Let somebody know where you're going and when you plan to return. And of course, as always, bring essential items with you like food, water, bug spray, sunscreen. All of those things are really important. And then, of course, you know, if you do find something and you think you've properly ID'd it, always consult an expert. You know, it never hurts to double check. And, um, you know, folks like Chelsea are obviously so passionate and so willing to help. So, be sure to take that step as well. And of course, like Chelsea just mentioned, be ethical out there. Only take what you'll use. You know, if there's an opportunity for you to invite someone else along, or if you've been doing this for a long time and there's an opportunity for you to teach somebody new, do that. You know, it's really important that we all get the opportunity to go out there and share in these resources in a way that's safe and ethical so we can enjoy them. And of course, you know, we would be remiss not to mention that Foraging for wild edibles goes hand in hand with so many other activities in the outdoors and lends itself to so many different um, activity and ability levels as well. So whether you're taking the kids to a state park to run around a little bit or you're going for a hike with your partner in the woods, even kayaking, sometimes you can find these on riverbeds and things like that. So there's lots of Lots of tie in there. I have a funny comment on the kayaking. The one of only two times that I have actually flipped in my kayak I was trying to harvest some golden oyster mushrooms off of a tree that was overhanging the river and I had my kayak paddle and I leaned too far and I got the mushrooms, but I got soaked. Also, another note with that, with nettles, um, we were on a floating trip with some friends and I apparently was this magical woman because there is a wild cure for stinging nettle stings often growing right beside it. Um, so if you have stinging nettle, chances are you will have jewelweed growing right beside. So learning how to identify jewelweed or some of those plants that maybe aren't edible, but are your plant friends out there? Um, The juice, the jewelweed takes away the sting instantly. And so a friend that had uh, gotten off the bank to use the restroom, uh, he got into the stingy nettles that grabbed some jewelweed and we were on our way having a good time again. Learn how to identify plants, not just for edibility. Sometimes you'll, you'll find a friend out there. Chelsea, we need to talk. I need all the friends I can get when it comes to singing nettle. Oh, I can't echo that enough. Um, <laughs> I think we all have gone to some place in our mind where we had a terrible incident with stinging nettles. I couldn't say it better than, than you guys both summed it up this morning. So again, I want to thank you again for joining us. Um, I want to challenge our listeners to get out, go look, go see grab a field guide, grab the scouts guide and, and just get out and, and go look, um, see what you can find. And as always, thank you for tuning into this week's episode of She Goes Outdoors podcast. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or the She Goes Outdoors website, escooutdoors.com. Our fishing box is currently available and it is flying off the shelves. So get yours soon uh, before they sell out. Again, $50, that's everything, plus shipping and handling delivered to your doorstep. So we look forward to to you purchasing and then joining us for our, our educational Zoom. As always, thank you for joining us and we will see you outdoors. 